Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Amy Jaramillo. She is the medical director of Health Science Clinic in Miami, Florida. And you've probably never heard of her unless you're one of her lucky clients, but I think you're gonna be hearing about her a lot. Like I said, she's the medical director of the clinic and we talk about her approach and her clinic's approach, because she works with a couple of doctors in her clinic, where they go after some of the nastiest, baddest diseases that we hear of on our planet, things like ALS, things like MS. And then as well, a lot of the chronic diseases of aging, things like atrial fibrillation, or things like lupus, or maybe... I mean, honestly, if you can think of something that rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes... And they have actually found a common thread that unites all of these things. And Amy herself will say, this is not necessarily new. The thought that viruses that over 90% of the population is believed to carry might be behind some or all of these diseases is not a foreign concept. I'm talking about viruses like EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, or herpetic viruses, HSV-1, 2, 6, things like Lyme disease, or things like mold toxicity, or other types of bugs that either are very difficult to treat, or we think that they go dormant in the human body. And as it turns out, from the work that they've done, maybe they don't go dormant. Maybe if we look at all of these diseases, from an infectious diseases lens, and we go at it from that perspective, maybe we might just be able to solve for X in a new and innovative way. And just to keep you guys interested, I will tell you that Amy and her team have two, I think maybe three now, medically confirmed reversals of ALS. Notice that we don't use the word cure, We're talking about reversal. We're talking about people who've reclaimed function, but who Amy talks about as being in remission. And part of the reason why she's using that word is because this is all very new. This is all in the last two to three years. So really exciting work. So we're going to talk about, go deep into these viruses, how they're manipulating the immune system, how genetics come into play, and possibly depending on a person's unique predispositions, their unique exposure, even to toxins, how heavy metals come into play and how sometimes being high in a heavy metal is not what you think it is. We also touch on peptides because of course they are part of Amy's toolkit and she talks about when she brings them onto the scene to help with people's progress. So it's a bit of a long episode, but it's chock-a-block full of like fascinating stuff, you guys. So I hope that you enjoy it. If you decide after this that you need to get in touch with Amy, then you're gonna wanna go to bodyhealth.life and 
And I mentioned all these crazy diseases and conditions, but know that she and her team also work with people on health optimization. And she talks about that a little bit in the episode as well. So if you feel that this episode has value for someone in your life, if you know of someone who would benefit from this information, please, please, please make sure that you share it out with them because this is an important one. And if you enjoyed this episode, also please make sure to leave us a review because it's those reviews that allow us to be seen and reach more people. If you're trying to reach me, you know the drill. NatNidham.com is my website. I have a membership community on Mighty Networks called BSP Community. You can get information about that on the website, NatNidham.com. I'm also relaunching my peptide crash course. So if you're big into peptides and you want to get oriented in that space, that might just be the course for you. You can sign up for it on the website. And last but not least, of course, the Facebook community, Optimizing Superhuman Performance is another great space where lots and lots of people come together and talk about peptides. So thank you so much for being here. I'm going to leave you in just a second, but first I want to talk to you about healthy aging and muscle. Look, if you're over the age of 40, maybe even 35, you've probably noticed that building and holding onto lean muscle isn't quite as easy as it used to be. And this is an issue because carrying muscle not only helps us to look good, it also means that we stay metabolically healthy with less effort, we get to perform our best, and it's a huge part of aging well. And this is why keeping up with a solid exercise routine is critical, and people like me keep harping about it. But keeping that muscle healthy as we age is a whole different ballgame. I know that we never want to present a problem without a solution, and there is a solution to this problem that I've been using now for the last seven to eight months. It's a compound that's created a stir in the field of human performance and healthy aging, and it is called Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. I learned about them in episode 99 of this podcast. If you haven't checked it out, you may want to go back and listen to it. The active ingredient is urolithin A, and it is the culmination of over 15 years of research, over 11 human clinical trials. We're not talking about mice here. We're talking about humans and over 300 scientific studies. And what does it do? Urolithin A improves muscle endurance and performance in humans. It also stimulates mitophagy, which is a critical process in healthy aging used by the body to make sure that we get rid of defective mitochondria that can get in the way of optimal health and performance. And how do you take it? This is really cool. You either take it as a great tasting protein shake, you can use capsules if you travel a lot, or they make it in a delicious powder, either in a berry or ginger flavor to add to yogurt drinks or shakes. I actually use all three depending on the day. Listeners of this podcast get to save 10% with discount code NAT10. Just go to mitopure.com, either get a three-month supply to try all three, or you can pick your favorite. And now let's dive in with Amy. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Okay. Well, Amy had a a huge welcome to the podcast. I'm always excited for my podcast, but oh my God, I've been like on tenterhooks all week waiting for this. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah, no, this is going to be, this is going to be one of those conversations that I think is going to really move people in a very different way, whether they're a patient or medical professional, a practitioner, the work that you're doing is just, I mean, it's so incredible. And more than that, I think, you know, many people are doing incredible work, but the results that you're achieving with some of your patients is really 
it's the kind of thing that people only dream about. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this conversation with me. I love being here. Thanks for having me. It's it's a real pleasure. Why don't you tell people a tiny bit about yourself, like literally three minutes, a little bit about you and what got you started on this journey that you're on right now? My background is science. I'm not an MD. I wanted a better, clearer understanding of what's causing a lot of the common conditions. I'd had some family history. Uh, so I had dealt with a couple of medical situations with my close family. I think that's probably what brings a lot of people kind of in this direction. Yeah. I found that there weren't good answers or solutions. And I found that the solutions navigating cancer, for example, with my dad, uh, or a really advanced case of type 2 diabetes with my grandmother, uh, the options, the, the medical options, they weren't really addressing the cause. And so, you know, watching folks, and I think everybody's had this experience in one place or another, watching folks that you love go through health situations. I don't know. It makes you want to do something about it. It makes you want to invent a better mousetrap or come up with a different way. Um, and so for me, that was the really big thing that spurred me on just kind of looking at it and scratching my head and thinking what's actually causing these problems because treating it at kind of the end point where all the symptoms are seems tough and oftentimes ineffective mm -hmm. and so if you could intervene earlier on and then one step aside from that if you could actually understand what's happening not the end point whatever the disease is caused or, or called but what's driving it uh, it seems like we'd be a lot more successful. Uh, and so 2016, I started body science uh, and decided I was going to go down the road of root cause analysis. And at the time, my medical directors, the MD I was working with was a neurologist. I have a lot of background in neurology, uh, starting out in neurogenetics uh, and then moving into uh, surgical forms in neurology, looking at a handful of diseases, Parkinson's, dystonia, that type of thing. And then realizing, you know, I want to do this myself. I want to take a look and kind of figure out what if we could change the course of these things. Genetics, imagine you're largely predicting what people are going to get. And then taking somebody to surgery to correct, you're already knee deep in a disease. And oftentimes you could have predicted it. So the question is, how do we intervene way before that? even if there is a genetic predisposition and change what would otherwise be kind of the, the fate that that person would live out. And so again, seeing it in my own family, there's gotta be a way to, a better way of doing it. So that was it. That was, that was kind of what spurred me forward. Wow. And so interesting that you bring up genetics because, you know, we often say to people, your genes are not your fate. Yeah. They're your predispositions but the environment, the epigenetics is what's going to drive, is what's going to pull the trigger on a particular predisposition. And I think that, you know, a lot of people by now have heard it to death, you know, your lifestyle, your food, your this, your that, all of these things are the factors that are going to trigger your genes one way or another to express that's going to potentially lead you down one path or another. But what we've been talking about, like now for an hour before this podcast and for another hour or two before we even, for the first time we met, is other triggers in the environment that are playing a much bigger role than anybody had ever imagined, right? And they're multifactorial. There's toxins, there's the heavy metals that are toxins in their own way. 
And then there's infections, co-infections like pathogens, right? Like the Lyme. And so I'd love you to talk about that a little bit because it's funny. I didn't think we're going to, we were going to go in through genetics, but it sounds like that's where we're going right now. So, and then kind of evolve from there, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you figured out and, and what you're seeing in terms of how all of these different factors are coming together and creating different scenarios for people. Yeah. So what really brought infections onto my radar is, was COVID. I think for a lot of folks, it's same. When COVID first showed up and we started in the office seeing people with COVID, so remember that was January 2020, more or less. Yeah. So the interesting thing was seeing a lot of people sick with COVID. And then by that summertime, seeing a lot of the same people that were coming in and they had evidence of of herpetic infections. So I saw a lot of people with shingles. I saw a lot of people with cold sores, herpes simplex one. I had a lot of people that had uh, described the fact that they had herpetic lesions in, you know, on their genitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw belly stuff at that time. And there's a link to Epstein-Barr. So just talking about different herpetics. The big question then, so summertime 2020, why are all these folks post-COVID getting herpetic outbreaks? And so initially my thinking was COVID is wearing down the immune system and just allowing opportunistic infections to come out. Yeah. By the end of that year, there was a lot of discussion about reactivation of infections, primarily herpetics, through master infections and COVID was one of the primary. And that was an interesting look at herpes viruses. So primarily herpes one and two, CMV, so cytomegalo, Epstein-Barr, herpes simplex six. And it allowed me to see them, I think from a different vantage point, there were a lot of articles by the end of the year describing the role that these things were playing in different diseases. And there were a lot of diseases that for me, I just took as part of the human condition and didn't really look for a cause. Instead, I just, I don't know, lumped them into the category of aging. The fact that I saw so many reactivations of herpetic, so testing and seeing IgM activity, and then seeing various different symptoms. I saw lots of people that complained of brain fog. Initially, Mm -hmm. I thought that was long haul COVID. It turns out a number of them were IgM for CMV, right? And cytomegalo, we know it can cause brain fog. And as well, I saw a number of folks that had all kinds of aches and pains and just horrible fatigue. Yeah. And a number of them were positive IgM for Epstein-Barr. Okay, so that brought up kind of the idea of what if that's really what's happening? As people cycle through just health-related issues, what if we are, in fact, at least some of the time, seeing reactivation of these infections and just kind of putting them into the category of getting sick or getting older, but we're looking at infections, the estimate is over 90% of the human population has a herpetic infection. Like one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're looking at these infections that are doing unusual things to the immune system over time, as far as changing the immune system and then coming out and making a lot of symptoms. And so that for me was the time that I did a deep dive into the kinds of diseases that are associated with herpes viruses. Epstein-Barr was on my radar. And the reason end of 2020, beginning of 2021, 
it's when a lot of literature, a lot of a lot of proof was coming out about the role in Epstein Barr relating to multiple sclerosis. So as a cause of multiple sclerosis. And you know, for me, I live largely in the world of neuroinflammation. So I do lots of, of different things, but neuroinflammation is a place that is a big passion of mine. And the question was, uh, if Epstein-Barr could make multiple sclerosis, could it make scarring, right, on, on neurons, what else could it do as far as neuroinflammation? And how common and how chronic is it? And how big of a role is it playing in the other neuroinflammatory conditions that we're seeing? And that's when I started looking at um, herpes as a family and finding a very significant tighter level as IgG in an overwhelming majority of the people that we were treating for neuroinflammation and looked at the option of going after viruses, taking a step back, Natalie, you and I were looking and I was showing you, it looks to be the cause. So talking about Epstein-Barr looks to be one of the primary causes of atrial fibrillation. Right? It looks That's to crazy. Be one of the primary causes of irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And so when I make that statement, it's because more and more data is coming out, linking it, and not just as an association, but as a primary cause. And so because over 2020, right, starting out seeing activation of herpetics, and, but not really understanding the reason why, by the end of that year, the data coming out about Epstein-Barr and its role in causing multiple sclerosis and then a deeper dive looking at Epstein-Barr relating to uh again atrial fib and for me that was just kind of a, a function of aging yeah type it's like the heart wearing out or something yeah I wasn't even looking for a rationale as to why atrial fibrillation becomes more common as people age. For me, there wasn't even a reason to look at that and once it became clear number one, the high titers IgG in a lot of the folks that we were treating, not just for neuroinflammation, but for all kinds of conditions. And the link for herpetic viruses in so many common conditions that largely we're not looking for causes of, we're just going to treat that changed my vantage point entirely. And it kind of set me up for uh, 2021 and 2022 of going on a hunt for infections and getting an understanding of what do infections look like. And if you could treat a single infection, what would the symptom symptomatic changes be? What, what do these infections look like? Yeah. And so spending 2021 and 2022 on a hunt for infections and looking for therapies that would kind of trigger or target a specific infection and then as a result, watching titer levels decrease for that infection and seeing the change in symptoms, I think at that point it became very clear that these infections are dividing people into real estate mm-hmm. and symptoms. And so the final picture, which is the disease, oftentimes is really the culmination of multiple infections each one affecting kind of a different area or group of areas in the body and causing different symptoms, right? And of course, these infections working synergistically in 
their own real estate uh, to cause what ultimately looks like a disease. And that kind of we were talking before we jumped on the heterogeneity of these diseases. So the fact that the symptoms are so varied from one person to another, mm-hmm. largely then I think relates to the kind of infections, the combinations of infections and the things that trigger them, which are the environmental exposures and sometimes the genetics. So for me, it really has been a couple of years of looking at these different infections initially seeing them through the lens of dormant, right? Because that's everybody was trained and now really understanding the term stealth. The immune system doesn't see them, isn't sensitizing to them. They are IgG, which we, I think, have largely scientifically and medically ruled out as cause for concern. But interestingly, when we treat and somebody is IgG and we bring those levels down substantially, we routinely see significant symptomatic improvement in the diseases that we're treating, suggesting IgG is not dormant, right? And it's not a non-issue. It has a virulence and pathogenicity associated with it that can cause disease. And so the example going back to multiple sclerosis, Mm -hmm. you don't need to be IgM, right? It's not like somebody was Epstein-Barr IgM mediated for decades and then developed multiple sclerosis. They were IgM at the time of the acute infection. And after that, they've been IgG their whole lives and developed multiple sclerosis as a result of chronic uh, IgG. So they developed the, the disease as a result of chronic Epstein-Barr. My point is from the testing point of view, it didn't look like an IgM. Can I stop you for a second, if you don't mind? Can you define to people the difference between IgG and IgM? Like people, I think, know that IgE is emergency. That's when you have an allergic reaction to something that like you can't breathe, you have like whatever the case may be. But IgM and IgG, maybe people are a little less familiar with. Can you maybe break that down for us a tiny bit? So we're talking about immunoglobulin. So the Ig part is immunoglobulin. And so now you're centering the part of the immune system around antibodies. So there are other parts of the immune system. um, But now what we're talking about is antibodies. And antibody titers are a traditional way to look at infections, both bacterial and viral. When somebody gets an infection initially, you launch an IgM attack commonly at the beginning, there is a latency. You see an infection, you've never seen it before. It takes a period of time to get all of your soldiers together, your IgM, you are in acute infection and control it. Your body after that switches to IgG. IgM are the fighters that realize there is an active infection. IgG is almost like the prison guards that have the infection behind prison bars, they're watching infection so it doesn't get out. If the infection did get out and cause a problem, if the pathogen got out, so now it's not potentially pathogenic, it is pathogenic, it's actively causing disease. The immune system would switch from the guards in the prison watching these things behind the bars to actively getting a bunch of police and going on the streets and finding them. The active on the street, find the infection, that is IgM. And the goal when the body makes an IgM is you will watch those 
those criminals, those pathogens behind the bars. But if they come out, you don't have to spend the same length of time building your IGMR army. You already know who they are. You know how to go after them. And the concept of a vaccination is build an IGM army before the person ever becomes exposed to the disease. So if they were exposed to the disease, they already have IgM that they can turn on. So when you are in acute phase, you have the infection, you will make your IgM. It's the infection, the bad guys on the street doing crimes. Okay, IgM, go after them. Afterwards, you're just monitoring to try and keep them under control. The way that it's always been looked at up until now is if it's IgG, then the bad guys really are in a prison cell behind the bars. They can't do anything bad. Mm. Okay. However, what we know now is that's not really true. So in order for infections to cause damage and in order for infections to cause disease, they do not have to be in their acute phase. And so monitoring it ordinarily, the way that you'd see if something is acute, Let's say, for example, I have COVID right now and yeah. we measure my blood. It would show COVID IgM positive. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, as an example, I no longer have active COVID. Right? Now it's going to show IgG positive. But anybody that's had long haul recognizes that even IgG, so you don't have the active infection, but you still have ongoing symptoms. Right. And IgG is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Right. The bigger the infection, the more IgM, typically the larger your IgG level after the fact, because IgG is considered to be protective. However, you're talking about antibodies. And so now we're in the world of autoantibodies, potentially, meaning the more antibodies that you have circulating around, the more potential for mistake, right? The more potential for autoantibody. And so the double-edged sword protecting somebody from getting the infection next time, the body is going to make a high level of IgG. But the higher the level of IgG or the higher the amount of antibodies looking for that infection, the higher the risk of autoantibody conditions. And so what protects you also puts you at risk. Right. That's so interesting. And also based on our conversation, those bad guys behind the bars are not sitting around doing nothing. I think, which is, which is the next, our next layer of conversation. But I think, I think one of the, there's so many different ways we could go here because I, you know, that I think in and of itself is a really important concept because traditionally I think that, you know, by convention, people believe once your bad guys are behind bars, yeah, you got the IgG, whatever. They're not, they're just, just, just hanging out, doing nothing. You've kind of are seeing evidence that they're not hanging out doing nothing. They've built up a whole network of tunnels and whatnot and are pulling strings from behind the bars. And they're your master criminals. <laughs> and, and we know it now because looking at the diseases that have an association with Epstein-Barr, uh, a number of cancers. Yeah. Again, uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, right? That has, has uh, been looked at very strongly as far as the causal link, multiple sclerosis, a lot of discussion about type one diabetes. And so my point is for all of these folks that have conditions that look to be associated to herpes viruses, we are not looking at a situation where IgM or acute infection is happening this whole time. We're looking at a situation where people came in contact with these viruses, commonly the first or second decade of life. So age 10 to 20. And then they develop diseases as a result of 
them, it could be six decades later. You think about atrial fib. Yeah. As the infections, as an IgG or what's always been considered non-threat, as these things are sitting behind the scenes, actually causing all kinds of immune disruption. So yeah, it gives kind of a, a very different look at conditions. And going back to testing, treating, and then seeing clinical outcomes, mm-hmm. when I looked at it initially, so again, 2020, 2021, uh, through a very traditional lens, Yes, I'm seeing IgG tighter levels. What's what's the likelihood that they're a problem? But treating and bringing those levels down and seeing functional improvements and clinical improvements changes everything, right? And it, and it changes this old look of the criminals that are behind the bars. And now just kind of expounding on that. I don't know how many criminals are behind bars that are still running a master a criminal empire yeah. from jail, but you imagine plenty of them. And so now kind of just reorienting, I think for a lot of these infections, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at infections that do not look active in the way that we had been trained to see them. Right. But in IgG, they are still very destructive. Wow. Yeah, no, that's really... That's that's amazing. So one of the things we talked about, and I don't know how how specific you want to get, but you talked about very specific cases of patients you've worked with where you've observed as you lower those titers of IgG, actual function coming back. Are you willing? Are you able to share any of that here? Yeah. Yeah. What happened was um, my I was I was seeing just a lot of people with all kinds of conditions. Remember, I'm not an MD. Uh, so just kind of as that caveat, uh, I had somebody that was referred into the office with ALS, and this was 2017. And it was before COVID. So for me, immunology was still an area that I was unclear on when we're talking about these infections. And there were certain patterns as far as infections and chemicals that looked to be potential triggers. He went on to be my first reversal in 2019. Uh, And so there is a group that acknowledges reversals. He was identified as the 44th ALS reversal. So just to kind of give you a sense of things, the question when I started with that, are these conditions treatable? Are they, will they respond to treatment? And what am I actually trying to treat? Mm -hmm. I would tell you once that happened, then I think I got fired up, right? With the idea of- No kidding. Right, since that's true, right? So now we're looking at a disease that is considered to be non-responsive to treatment. And I'd already had at that point, a number of people that had improved with Alzheimer's, uh, that had stabilized with Parkinson's, uh, that had corrected when it came to type two diabetes, right? So that for me, again, was kind of a look at, huh, what if we turn this around and see it from a different vantage point? That was my first reversal. My second was different than what we're describing. It was somebody that had come in contact with a number of chemicals and specifically polychlorinated biphenol. We know the link to neuroinflammation. And so that was really working through not so much infections, but polychlorinated biphenol. And he was recognized uh, as a reversal in Europe. My 
heard uh, since 2019, and we're just waiting uh, for recognition of reversal. That was very definitely infections. And here's how it happened. She came in the office initially October of 2020 and had ALS and the diagnosis of ALS and the muscle atrophy and the muscle fasciculations or twitches, right, that go along with it. Um, And it took about a year to get control. And what I mean by control is improve muscle tone. At that point, she did not have muscle twitching anymore and she'd regained the majority of her muscle. And so the pictures are pretty impressive, right? What you see initially the year before was a lot of atrophy. And then a year later, what you see is somebody that doesn't really have any evidence of atrophy. And I thought we were out of the woods. She, her daughter was going to Europe for a concert and so she had gotten a vaccine and there has been discussion about vaccinations being able to reactivate certain herpes viruses epstein-barr being one of them at the time it was unclear she called me from europe and she said you are not going to believe this i have wild fasciculations or muscle twitching like what i had before during the time that she was symptomatic for als Mm-hmm. And again, for me, I wasn't quite sure what was happening. I get that there's a reactivation of disease. She came back. Uh, we go back through treatment. She gets the symptoms under control. January 2022, she develops COVID. She calls me again. This is about three months later. And her ALS symptoms are back again. At the beginning, right? So she doesn't go, she doesn't uh, decompensate back to where she was before, but she starts having symptoms of ALS, muscle twitching and muscle atrophy. She comes in and sure enough, she'd had significant muscle loss in one of her calves over the course of a couple months. Here is kind of the indicator of a herpetic. What she had was burning, tingling and numbness in both legs. So paresthesias, right? Prior to that, and prior knowing knowing that it was Epstein-Barr reactivation, I would not have realized that that burning, tingling, or numbness, some people will describe it as ants or electricity, I did not recognize that as a symptom of a herpetic. Hmm. When I went back through a lot of the folks that, that I've worked with that have ALS, that was one of their primary symptoms. And commonly, for example, ants or electricity on a jawbone or ants or electricity around their body. Now, remember, motor neuron disease does not influence sensory neurons, so you shouldn't have burning, tingling, or numbness. Right. And the question was, why so many people, and I would tell you about 30% of the people that I had worked with with motor neuron disease had that sense, that that sensory neuron kind of symptom presentation prior to developing motor neuron symptoms. Okay, with Lindy, um, I suspected it was herpetic because the information at that point was coming out about COVID and potential reactivation. Remember, the couple of years before, I'd already seen post-COVID shingles, uh, cold sores. So right. I knew in the I summer, re- I'd already seen a bunch of reactivation. It made sense, and so what we decided to do, we decided to prescribe an antiviral, so acyclovir. Uh, for a week. Three days later, the burning, tingling, numbness had gone away and the fasciculations or muscle twitches stopped entirely. Wow. Okay. I had another lady that was here, Maria, 
also with ALS, who complained prior to ALS of burning, tingling, and numbness behind her knees. We used an antiviral. Now, what I would tell you is that treatment for me was really just to test the theory. Mm-hmm. Is it a virus? So I don't believe that an antiviral medication is going to control this long-term. And so going back to the idea of multiple sclerosis, I don't think that you're going to avoid the neuroinflammatory disease decades later by just controlling symptoms with an antiviral oral medication. And I don't think that the titer levels come down to a point where you could prevent that disease. The reason we used that antiviral was to see cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's anything else, it's not going to respond to that antiviral, right? And it's an antiviral specifically for herpetics. So the question was, yes, no. Maria, burning, tingling uh, behind her knees, and she had affected speech. So dysarthria, slurred speech. The interesting thing, because of the burning, tingling, and numbness, and now looking at that as, huh, I wonder if this is what herpetics look like. And if that's the reason that that was one of her first symptoms, even before motor neuron symptoms, put an antiviral on board. And here's the interesting thing. The burning, tingling, and numbness improved. So her walk improved. She was very rigid. Okay, The rigidity improved and her voice improved. Now, prior to that, I hadn't linked those two things. I didn't really have any association or link. The way I looked at it was, motor neuron devastation, multiple different motor neurons in different areas. And so separately, speech is being affected and rigidity. Okay, because we treated with an antiviral, the burning, tingling, and numbness went away, the speech and the rigidity both improved. That's where all of a sudden it became clear that these infections are carving out real estate or territory. And then that's when it became clear if herpes simplex one, you know, is primarily, you know, in the in the C-spine or or the area of back of the neck, and it's going to make cold sores, herpes simplex two living at the base of the spine is going to make genital sores. Okay, so meaning what if we really are looking at the fact that we're seeing symptoms close to the area of where the infections are? And what if from that we could build a roadmap Mm -hmm. seeing symptoms? And now really understanding what these symptoms are. So paresthesias could in fact be a herpetic. And then using that to decide which are the primary infections that we want to go after. And not just using titer levels to determine the virulence or the the pathogenicity or the disease causing ability of the infection, but really understanding what are the symptoms of the individual infections. And then from that, a couple of things. Uh, one, looking up is a study. I would tell you who wrote it if I could think of it. So I'm, I'm actually sorry to the folks that did this study because I can't. Uh, they looked at the median age of or the time of protein misfolding in individuals with ALS prior to any motor neuron symptoms. So they looked at people who had ALS and had passed from ALS that had tissue samples or pathology done for a non-related reason prior to ever having any symptoms. And so they had a handful of skin biopsies, whatever that was for removing a mole or or who knows what. They had gynecologic tissue. They had Mm -hmm. multiple different tissue types. And so they 
determined that a median of two to three years before TDP43 misfolds in the brain, before any motor neuron symptoms are occurring, TDP43 misfolding, which is the hallmark of ALS, was already evident in the tissue from those biopsies that they took an average of two to three years before any motor neuron symptoms. And they found one individual was 10 years before. Wow. So the question is what's actually damaging motor neurons and motor neuron disease? Is it really the, the disease or is it the kind of the propagation of these infections and damage that have been going on and misfolding proteins throughout the body? for years prior to even causing motor neuron symptoms. And so then going back to burning, tingling, numbness, because that looks to be a herpetic symptom, not always. And thinking about the fact that for folks that have a motor disease, they shouldn't really have sensory symptoms. Right. It's uniquely motor. And the number of folks that had sensory symptoms. And so then what happened we went down the road of treating those viruses. And we had somebody at the time, uh, Luke, and he had what he referred to as, I don't know if Luke is ever going to see this. I'm hoping actually, Luke used to refer to his legs as stick legs. So somebody with ALS, right? Uh, and a lot of atrophy in his legs. And we treated, he had uh, the symptom on his cheek of burning, tingling and numbness. And we went after Epstein-Barr and what he regained was a substantial amount of muscle. So circumferential increase in muscle in his legs and it happened relatively quickly. And so to give you a, a more comprehensive story or more accurate story for the first couple of months, he was sick as could be. Mm-hmm. And Epstein-Barr- Of, like, of treatment. Tons of, he, he, here's the thing. He didn't look sick like treatment. He looked sick like Epstein-Barr super fatigued, lots of weakness, couldn't get up from the couch. He was on the sofa for the better part of about three months. Just, just weakness, like like a chronic Epstein-Barr infection. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't test for EBV. I didn't, I should have. Uh, and then by the end of that, he called me about two or three months later, and he was able to stand up in the tub, but he hadn't been for all a long period of time. So it's almost as if what we're doing is triggering a sensitivity of the immune system to go after these infections and address them. And And so he's the war zone. Right. And he's the war zone. So he's lying there feeling horrible as the immune system wakes up and goes to war after the infection, basically. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, I know the term herxing, you know, is so commonplace. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I'm not sure that that's what I think I'm seeing. Uh, instead, I think I'm seeing the reactivation of an infection, meaning I don't think I'm seeing die off. I don't think I'm seeing an immune system that's being, uh, I don't know, bombarded with mycotoxins. I think I'm seeing as if somebody redeveloped Epstein-Barr, so an immune system that can see it and is attacking it. And it brings up the question of why are some people getting sick from these infections? Mm -hmm. If Epstein-Barr looks to be a primary cause of multiple sclerosis, and Epstein-Barr is in over 80% of the human population, then why isn't the prevalence of multiple sclerosis much higher? And so I would tell you, I don't think it's the infection. I think it's some people, an immune lack of sensitivity 
activity to identify those infections. And now we were talking before we jumped on the podcast about HLA and an inability to see mold, right? It's major histocompatibility complex, an immune system that doesn't really identify that pathogen as a bad guy. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing an immune system that is living in a body where these infections are doing things, doing terrible things, but the immune system or the major histocompatibility complex is not identifying that as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so then I think the real key is there are certain people just like an HLA, people that don't sensitize towards mold, right? So they become mold toxic. I think there are people that don't actively sensitize towards herpetics. And I don't think that that's unique towards herpetics. I think when we go into the world of bacterial infections and tick-borne, you know, the question is who are persisters, right? There's a lot of terms that are out there. What makes somebody a persister? And so it's less about, for me, the fact that people are not responding to medication and more about the fact that you can't just kill the infection. We were talking earlier about kill strategies. It's not just killing the infection. It's killing an infection and simultaneously sensitizing an immune system to be able to even see the infection. Because I think about weeds in a garden. That's always the, the picture in my mind. You know, you plant flowers, takes a lot of effort for them to grow. And now let me just tell you, I'm not a gardener. <laughs> and probably because of this reason, because I'm not a gardener because I can't keep flowers alive. And because in the past when I've tried, the whole garden becomes weeds. Okay, so yeah. weeds for me are better adapted towards difficult environments. So if I don't water new flowers the day later, you know, they look terrible. But the weeds look healthy as can be. And so the the question is, if you take just a kill strategy, and so you take everything off the soil, just going back to plants. So no flowers, no weeds, what's going to grow back first. And so my point is when you take a kill strategy against bacterial or viral, what's going to grow back first. Now that's not, I don't think true for all infections. I recognize there is very definitely a place uh, for antibiotics and antivirals and what changed health in general was the advent of antibiotics, you know, in the, in the forties. And mm-hmm. had that not been the case, people would die of all kinds of infections. So there's a, a place for it, but uh, it's not just a kill strategy. And especially in what's referred to as persisters or people where you kill the infection. So again, we take off everything that's in the ground. We, we remove all the grass, we get ready to plant things. We don't plant anything. What's there a couple of days later, it's weeds. So you kill off everything. Um, what grows back. And I think that's true, not just in the conversation we're having, you know, I think that's been proven in oncology as well, Mm -hmm. right? You kill a bunch of cells and what comes back first. And I think the answer is whatever is best adapted for that environment. So in a garden, it's weeds. Commonly in a body, it's going to be infections. Uh, In somebody with cancer, it's going to be, you know, cancerous growths. Right. And I think what you're saying is a big part of the approach is and that's where you had said to me that you had started with this kill strategy and then realized it's not enough a big piece of the puzzle here is retraining the immune system or somehow getting the immune system to come back online and to recognize the pathogen so that it kind of gets in on the game because otherwise you're stuck with the system okay, so you're is sitting back what happened was it was maria so maria had the burning tingling numbness behind her knees yeah and her knees and her speech being tied together. 
we put on an antiviral oral. Yeah. And the question is, what happens next? And the answer, she had symptomatic improvement for a handful of months. And then both symptoms, rigidity in her legs, along with burning tingling, and her voice worsened at the same time. Okay, so the question is, if we can't use oral antivirals as a way to get control, what would be our next? And so for a number of the folks that were here, it was CMV, so cytomegalo, or HHV6, herpes simplex 6. And herpes simplex 6 has shown an association with motor neuron disease. Mm. Gancyclovir is an antiviral on label board, FDA on label board. So the first approach was let's run it and let's see, let's just get better control. If we can't get good oral control, oral medication, let's let's go with an IV. And same thing, what we saw was kind of a short-term improvement followed by what you imagine is in spite of treatment, the viruses uh, coming back. And, Which is what they do. Right. Well, yeah. Right. We, we know that people that have these viruses have them their whole life in spite of using treatment. So you use treatment when it's symptomatic or again, IgM, yeah. right? Yeah. IgM, you can normally see the symptom, you feel the symptom, but the rest of the time it's still there. That's why it can come back. Imagine. Uh, and so for me, let me think about this. It was probably about a year ago, really looking at that and recognizing this is not a kill strategy approach, whether we're talking about persisters and people that have been on antibiotics for upwards of two years, IV treatment for Lyme. And we have never done that in this center, but I know a number of people have gone through those treatments. And in the end of those two years, they still have these infections, mm -hmm. right? Or whether it was the folks that we were treating for herpetics and we treat Lyme and we treat herpetics. So bacterial and viral, um, I'm speaking about viruses right now, just because we went down that road, yeah. but this is not limited just to viruses. Uh, it became evident that the goal is also recruiting the immune system and oncology moved to that already, right? Chemotherapy versus biologics, chemotherapy, kill everything, biologics, improve the immune system awareness. And so that for me was the time where I started looking at T cells. So really measuring T cells, measuring inflammatory cytokines, Columbia university at the time was doing a clinical trial of T cells in people that had ALS. Uh, we saw a number of people that had been in that trial. The idea was put in T cells, but we didn't really see a lot of improvement. Mm -hmm. And that's where going back to the HLA concept, the question is, what if the immune system is not sensitizing to these infections in this group of people? And so it's not a kill strategy, but also it's not a put more soldiers in strategy because, and here's the way I think this is happening. Um, I imagine, you know, all these T cells, so you, you put them in through T cell therapy. The other army, the army of these infections has far outpaced Mm -hmm. the army of the immune system. So the way I imagine that is really these T cells as soldiers walking into this ambush. Trap. Right, right. Yeah. And they get ambushed. It's an ambush. And here's the other side. So imagine this at night, dark, right? Walking in, the other folks have night vision. Mm -hmm. they, they could see you coming from such a distance. They could see every single soldier, every single T cell coming at them from a distance and they're training their sights right on the the military or the immune system 
the immune system is never even going to be able to get there because the other side has so outpaced them. So going back to the idea of persisters or HLA, the question is, are we looking at some individuals where their major histocompatibility complex or their ability to perceive certain pathogens as disease causing that system is not working and so then going back to oncology the idea of sensitizing the immune system better equipping the immune system putting night vision on both sides you're still going to lose some soldiers but it's not going to be the same bloodbath and yeah. so doing that and measuring t cells right and antibody titers once kind of a biologic strategy was added in and layered into the mix kill strategy plus biologic that changed things and we can really see what we're doing so we were already seeing improvements in a consistent basis i'll tell you what i'm trying to do uh my the first uh reversal was 17 months and i would tell you they're referred to as reversals for me i like remission as a term right because yeah. i think that's really what it is i think the are relapsing remitting diseases i believe motor neuron disease is relapsing remitting and i think we are looking at the relapsing remitting capabilities of these infections and so i think for most people that have these uh neuroinflammatory diseases alzheimer's parkinson's uh ms uh, als they are largely trapped in relapse mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they couldn't remit but it does mean that's going to be getting control over the causes of it and so the question is, if the first was 17 months and the second was nine, but only because it was so clear the cause, a single cause, probably. and then the third for me was about 12 months. The question is, how do we get this down to these shorter periods of time? And how do we move these relapsing, remitting diseases into very short periods of relapsing with very long windows of remission? Mm -hmm. And if you think, MS as an example, right? Because really MS is our example of Epstein-Barr yeah. triggering neuroinflammation. Biologics are largely used over there. And the objective is to take a relapsing remitting disease and create long windows of remission. And so to that same vantage point, which is really an approach to treat a virus, I mean, ultimately, and improve the immune system, then we should be able to take the identical principle in other neuroinflammatory conditions triggered by infections and toxins and come to the same relapsing, remitting uh, approach to symptoms. So basically you're calling them reversals in the sense that you're reverting back to being asymptomatic until the next trigger comes along and then we kind of go at it again. Because to some degree, you know, one of the things you had said to me is you're able to reduce titers and that's what you do. Like you measure titers, like what is the visible... What can I see, whether it's IG, like in the IgM community, what am I seeing are the levels of these of these pathogens and and you're reducing them, but you even will not say you're eradicating them, but you're reducing them to the point where the load is so low that they just don't have enough oomph right now. But that doesn't mean they can't necessarily get reactivated or rebuild and come back at some point. Here's what I know to be true. I know Tommy had evidence of herpes simplex 6, and it was elevated. He no longer has titers that show up on a lab. Mm -hmm. so he, okay, So we know that we can do something reducing titers to a point where you can no longer see them. Yeah. The challenge of forecasting what's going to happen next is the limited 
length of time I've been doing this. And so the second reversal, Maris, he about a year ago ran a marathon. Which is ridiculous, guys. This is someone who had ALS, just to be clear. So I don't expect that there'd be any reason to see a relapse, but it's hard to know because, again, we're talking about a short period of time. For Lindy, she had this essentially relapse, redeveloped the muscle twitching or fasciculations, had this worsening in her calf muscle, and now has been stable. That was January of last year. And this year, she has been stable. So the question is, what do the years coming up look like? I'm not talking about for Lindy. Lindy looks to be stable, right? She Mm -hmm. looks to be somebody that has disease control. Do I expect from time to time uh, that treatment is required to control infections? I imagine. I think until we get better at really understanding viruses, the reactivation of viruses, the triggers that reactivate, and then Natalie, I don't know if we want to go down another road. We were talking already about receptors on cells and why virulence of COVID may in some cases be associated with receptor damage from toxins. Yeah, Uh, I was waiting for the segue. (laughs) (laughs) The question is, what would move somebody into a relapse? So if somebody's been in remission and not even a relapse necessarily as far as symptoms, but what if instead just the relapse is the virulence or damage that the infection is causing, even if you're not symptomatic. And again, somebody having an infection, it's doing all kinds of damage for decades, but you can't tell. So um, we know now, I mean, a number of receptors that are required for immune system control Mm -hmm. are modified or damaged by certain chemicals and toxins in the environment. And so I think when I think about it, it's living and non-living toxins, yeah. living being all the pathogens, non-living being all the chemicals. It's getting control from both sides in order to move somebody that has relapsing, remitting disease into remission and keeping them there. Hey, friends, I just want to take a minute to share with you one of the non-negotiable anchors of my longevity stack. Spermidine by Primidine. Spermidine was used for centuries by ancient Japanese emperors who knew a thing or two about longevity, and it's been a staple in the diets of Okinawan centenarians for, well, centuries. And now modern science is validating the hows and the why spermidine is a must-have tool in our smart aging arsenal. Not only does it positively impact nine of the 12 hallmarks of aging, but it also triggers beauty from within. Studies demonstrate that it supports hair growth, nail growth, as well as promotes collagen and elastin production. It even modulates circadian rhythm and improves cognition. I have seen these benefits in myself, my clients, and even my parents. This supplement absolutely works. If it sounds too good to be true to you, don't take my word for it. Head over to OxfordHealthSpan.com and read the borderline miraculous reviews from other users. And if you want to try it for yourself, make sure to use code BIONAT15 for a discount. I wanted to also bring in the the conversation because we've been talking about viruses a lot and some of the triggers. But one of the things we haven't touched on yet that I think is really interesting that you brought up earlier was the role that heavy metals or metal toxicities or that load of mercury, selenium, like some of them that we know are bad. Selenium by any measure is is a good one, right? Like it's, you're supposed to have selenium in your body, but there are certain viruses that, that use certain, whether it's mercury or cadmium or manganese. I think these are some of the ones we talked about in relationship to different viruses. How, when people are sitting there saying, okay, I'm going to do, um, 
whether it's a hair tissue mineral analysis or I've been told by my doctor my levels of mercury are too high in my blood, what that might mean with respect to viral load. Because what you also showed me were a bunch of papers that clearly outline, I think it was, was it HSV2 and mercury and selenium? Yeah. Right? Or EBV and that one was, I think that was manganese and- We were looking at Lyme. Lyme, that was it. So- um, I mean, to the Lyme community, this is huge, right? The, The thought that it's not just the pathogen, it's not just the Borrelia, it's actually these other elements that are giving it fuel for its fire kind of thing. So maybe I'm going to let you rip on that because All I'm right. probably making a mess of it, but go. <laughs> I think what I'm pretty good at is pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that that is what allows me to, to kind of put pieces together. So at the beginning, like a lot of other centers, we looked at functional testing in heavy metals, as far as infections, uh, nutritional panels, stool testing. And the question from a pattern recognition standpoint is what's making things virulent? So for example, if 10 people all have the the same infection, how come only one is getting sick with it? What actually is going on over there? Luke, we were talking about him earlier because of Epstein-Barr. So he was a welder in the Navy. Uh, he'd come in contact with a lot of manganese. He's a farmer. So manganese is something he still continues to come in contact with because of welding. Uh, on a separate note, he comes in contact with diesel. And that's just an on, on ARYL or T-cell receptor related issue. I saw his labs early on and sure enough, manganese and zinc were very elevated. Mm-hmm. And it was an outlier. Now, the challenge is making sure somebody isn't taking a supplement that already has a lot of those minerals. And going over, Natalie, to your point, which is sometimes it's a heavy metal, herpes simplex 2, and the role that mercury can play. Uh, but what became really evident, looking at a lot of different people, prioritizing infections for me then largely became a result of seeing where their metals were. And the reason metals or minerals, because of their ability to donate electrons and just because of their configuration and their binding in receptors, they are often used for replication of healthy cells and unhealthy cells. Um, I'll give you an example, calcium channel. So calcium, so we're talking about metal, so a two plus calcium. You think about how important calcium is, of course, to the body. Mm-hmm. But aside from a heart, as an example, I mean, the mitochondria is calcium gated. The lysosomes are calcium gated. Cells can't do cellular function without calcium. It turns out that viruses largely use calcium, so much so that calcium channel blockers can be used as antivirals. And that, that's a known concept. You can use calcium channel blockers as antivirals. And so you're oftentimes seeing these presentations of what I'm going to call metals. So heavy metals and trace minerals on the heavy metal side, you know, what you're instantly thinking of is lead or mercury, cadmium. Um, There are so many on the trace minerals. The way that they look is they're a good thing and get more of them. 
mm-hmm. going back to zinc and manganese triggering virulence or disease causing ability in Borrelia burgdorferi as a tick-borne or Lyme infection. The challenge is zinc is so important for the immune system. Yeah. But the idea that these infections are eating your lunch, right? I mean, like literally, they're, they're using the same stuff. And so I think commonly people will put things in thinking that it's going to be helpful for them. But what they're really doing is driving the disease causing ability of these infections. And so to your point, initially, I looked at metals. Uh, and my goal was to try and improve trace minerals and reduce heavy metals. I am not a fan of chelation. So when I say reduce metals, that's not my direction, but just get control over the balance of metals and put them in the right ratios, calcium to magnesium or zinc to copper. And then I realized this disproportionate ratio that I'm seeing, it looks like it potentially could be a result of the intention of these infections to replicate. So these were not just happening coincidentally, and these were not just happening um, as a result of disease. They were the underpinnings of the infections that are largely responsible for these diseases. And now going back, I know I've said it twice, but it's just it's just so profound to me. The fact that atrial fib, atrial fibrillation, looks to be resulting from Epstein-Barr, right? again, it changes everything about how we're looking at not just diseases, but conditions. And so now looking at the ingredients that these infections are using to proliferate and thinking about calcium channel blockers, and and even that's the question, if calcium is an, calcium channel blockers can be antiviral and you can use calcium channel blockers to control heart rate. And now we know Epstein-Barr is kind of in the middle of this mix between Hmm. heart rate so you, you got to wonder, are we actually using medications sometimes that are doing the opposite of what we want them to do, but sometimes they're actually working and but their method is controlling infections. And we don't even realize that that necessarily is what we are doing is the to driver control the disease, right? The so yeah, I look at, now when I look at, at metals, as an example, I'm looking at them in context with what infections would line up and match that distribution because even if the titer level on a lab is generally unimpressive it doesn't change the metals or the accumulation of ingredients is looking in the direction of replication of a specific infection regardless for me of what the titer level is showing yeah and again looking at it from that vantage point i would tell you treating from that vantage point, we have seen very definite symptomatic improvement in the types of diseases that largely do not respond in spite of the fact that oftentimes we'll look at antibody levels, going back to the idea of IgG, IgM, IgM being kind of the gold standard of how do you know somebody is sick with that infection at that time. Sometimes even the IgG will be very, very low But if the metals suggest that that's the virus or that's the bacteria that's driving the problem, we will still look to treat that and we will see improvement. And so when you say treat that, are you are you working towards correcting the balance of the heavy metals and the minerals as part of your strategy or you're just going after that pathogen? 
so what I have found is metals correct, ratios correct. If that imbalance is resulting from um, an infection, then treating the pathogen typically resolves that that asymmetric asymmetrical look on the metals. Wow. Again, the and and so the example I would give you for that is iron versus ferritin as an yeah. example. You know, in cancer, and mm-hmm. so when things are proliferating, whether and imagine whether it is a cancer, whether it's viruses, whether it's bacterial, whether it's fungal, when things are proliferating, you imagine a body is going to take a strategy to try and control it. And so if we're talking about rapid proliferation, it would not be uncommon for a body to sequester iron, so to remove iron and hold it instead as ferritin to reduce oxygenation if that's what's leading to replication in infections. And so as a body, I assume what you're doing is, yes, your cells uh, can't maintain ideal health, uh, but the infections can't grow either. And so I think we are seeing the same thing when we are looking at metal distributions and how bodies are moving around cofactors. And I believe a common mistake is to see levels of some of the cofactors that are driving reactions to notice that they are low and then with kind of a knee-jerk reaction to try and just put them back in place. Because you may be looking at an immune system trying to regulate those key ingredients that are being used for replication of infections and a body kind of sequestering them. And then you see that they're low, put them back in and may in fact be driving the the virulence of that disease. So I think that's part of the bigger picture. So for me, I don't take the approach of these are low, let me fix them. I take the approach of these are low, they're giving us information on what the actual underlying problem is. And when they resolve, that's going to give us a clear idea of when we have control. And the more things that we add in, when I'm talking like like uh, correcting those imbalances, the harder it is to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because imagine now you just added artifact into the levels that you're using to determine the the actual virulence of of the of the problem. Well, and you're weaponizing. So, you're potentially weaponizing the pathogen yeah. ultimately. Yeah, like, yeah. From a very I mean, simplistic term, like you know, grossly no, I, oversimplified. I, I, weaponizing, I think, is the perfect term. I think you're right on. I think that's exactly what's happening. So, would you say that a really good place to start for many people or clinicians is to try and establish? you know, which a lot of people don't even look at with any of these conditions, whether it's a chronic disease of aging that we've identified as a chronic disease of aging or one of these neurodegenerative or neuroinflammatory diseases or one of these chronic like unsolvable MSs and ALSs and all these things is to really run screens to understand what are the pathogens that I can identify and to ask the question of the person like you did with your, your, your marathoner, which is, what are the toxins you've been exposed to in your lifetime that could potentially be a factor here? I think, again, we know the large majority of the population worldwide has these infections. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to know who uh, isn't able to see them or sensitize them or who has damaged receptors as a result of chemical exposures. 
but it is still the starting point. So the tighter level, I don't think is going to give you the full story. Again, I have found folks that have low tighter level. It doesn't change the fact it is very definitely the starting point because even if the tighter levels are low, if when that person gets better, they're even lower, then you could you would still suspect that that may be a culprit. And so, yeah, Natalie, for me, one of my first steps is going to be getting very, very clear, uh, tighter levels of viruses. I'll look for things like Coxsackie, right, enterovirus. Um, I'll look for all the tick-borne infections. I'll look for all the herpetics because I can't tell. I'll look for things like toxoplasma, mm-hmm. uh, Harbo-19. I'll just try and get get an understanding of what could be in play because it's the interaction of them that looks to create whatever's going to happen next. Again, the interaction of those infections plus what looks to be receptor changes mm-hmm. on the receptors that are critical for T cell control based on exposures. And so I'm a big fan initially of getting a really, really clear history. Yeah. When the symptoms start and what were you doing the five years up to that point? Uh, were you traveling outside of your own country? Uh, were you sick with any reason? Were you on any kind of medications? I think a very, very clear history is incredibly important. Uh, I have a woman that's over here. Her Epstein-Barr levels were significant. IgG, they were significant. But her tick-borne infections were so much greater. I treated tick-borne women with ALS. Her improvements were minimal in spite of really high titer levels for multiple active IgM, active tick-borne infections. What she had told me when we first met, she said that when she was young, she was sick with mononucleosis. So mono and Epstein-Barr, same same thing, right? Uh, And she was out of school for about three months. Now she said that at the beginning, I put it in my note and just, I think kind of put it to the side because I'd gotten the labs looking at all the infections And the tick-borne or Lyme disease numbers were so impressive. Instead of going back to my note, where I just kind of went down that road of these numbers, okay. And then we treated and didn't see substantial improvement, ALS. Um, And I went back to my note and realized, Judy had told me at the very beginning, she had mono, she was really young at, at the time, like third grade, and she was out of school for about three months. So you think about however sick somebody would have to be that you take a child out of school for three months yeah and watching this dude i don't remember if it's two months or three months so you may have to correct me but it and then realizing even though epstein-barr levels do not feel compelling by comparison i think this thing's epstein-barr and so we put in we 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 went after epstein-barr like the story with luke she got super sick so uh her speech worsened her core strength worsened the atrophy in her legs worsened. I mean, and she looked like a mess. And a month later, I mean, she looked bad to begin with. So again, Judy, if you're watching, you look bad to begin with. But then here's the thing. She looked so much worse a month later. That was October. And then November, she looked even worse than that. Okay, now for me, it's kind of a good thing. It's the, it's the underlying infection. December, <laughs> he said this. So I'm like, I'm thinking about Judy nonstop going through Judy decided it would be a great surprise not to say that she was getting better. Oh, that's really nice, Judy. She came in in December. So (laughs) Judy comes in in December and she's like, you can't imagine like the things now that are happening um, and the improvements that I'm seeing. So 
like three months of this mess, right, of going after that infection. Going back, Natalie, to your point, it's not just tighter levels. They're not going to give you the full roadmap. But for me, they give me a baseline and a point of comparison. And talking about Tommy with herpes simplex 6, we didn't go after herpes simplex 6. But treating the other infections, herpes simplex 6 now doesn't even show up. The titer is below detectable level. But it's not because we put a treatment on specifically for it. It's because we treated several of the other infections. And you can see, looking at titer levels, in his case and in the other the other folks as well, you can see titer levels coming down in infections that we haven't even looked to address. It's almost like this supercharged mess. And so what I would tell you for sure, again, I like titer levels, but only as a marker to keep going back to and kind of getting a sense we have treated tick-borne multiple times and then seen activation of herpetics reactivation of IgG becoming IgM. And then at that point, treating the herpetics and getting symptomatic control. So there's a timing behind this thing as well. There are master infections, which are kind of the protectors. And I don't think that you can get to those other infections until you remove those top infections. And so... I would have told you a year ago, or for def definitely two years ago, I would have said one plus one equals two. So if you've got one infection and you've got another infection, you've got those two infections. And because that linear thinking is typically how things work. I would tell you in my experience now, one infection plus another infection, it equals a whole different infection that's very yeah. different than either of the first two. And then as an exponential morphing, right, you add a third infection, and now what you have is not the sum total of those individual infections. You have this monster of a thing. And so tighter levels to kind of give you an idea of who your players are, treating one at a time to see who owned what real estate, what yeah. did improve. Everything didn't improve. Did belly stuff improve? Did focus concentration improve? What was that infection controlling from a symptom point of view? And then putting the next one on. So we had somebody, again, ALS, uh, we, we treat lots of different things, but ALS is my, I don't know. I think it's my all time favorite. Why um, wouldn't I, it be if you can move the needle on it? Nobody else seems to be, and very few people seem to be able to. So that, but even aside from that, I would tell you for anybody that has never worked with, with ALS or doesn't know somebody with ALS, uh, Truly, I mean, they're about the, the greatest group of folks ever. If ever there's a group of fighters, like mm -hmm. people that just are 100% committed, just it's impressive. It's just impressive to see that degree of passion and commitment. It's it's an unusual group of people that decided no matter what, they're going to get themselves better. They're going to get themselves to the other side, no matter what anybody's told them. It's impressive. It's impossible to know somebody that's in that situation, that kind of a warrior and not respect them. Like, like truly, it's it's got to be, I would tell you, one of the most gratifying groups of people uh, on the planet to ever work with. They are just committed warriors. I've got another question because I want to ask this question before we leave, because yeah. one of the other tools in your toolkit, this is what I was driving at before, before we got on this thread, are peptides. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast are educating themselves about peptides. They're using peptides. They, they, you know, and in the community of Lyme and EBV and all these co-infections where people are just desperately looking for solutions, a lot of people come to 
the world of peptides because they're new. They seem to 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 be able to make an impact. And I can't tell you how often I get the I get the question in my group: What's the peptide for Lyme? What's the peptide yeah. for? And yeah. I, you know, I sit there every time, going, "How am I going to word this differently?" <laughs> there is no <laughs> peptide, but you know, there are these peptides that have gotten known. So there's thymosin alpha one for autoimmune diseases. LL37 is kind of like ethylecidin. It's a downstream metabolite of vitamin D. It's a very powerful killer kind of peptide. It's a very toxic peptide. It's almost like, I think of it sometimes almost like chemo, right? That it's just going to napalm the whole landscape. And often people will feel worse than than better. But you do use peptides in your practice. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know, yeah. kind of where they come into play because they sure don't come into play at the beginning <laughs> from the sounds of it. Yeah, I've been involved with peptides since 2017, right? So it's it's something I'm really familiar with. I would tell you when I think about treatment options, they're widgets, they're all widgets. Uh, and so what I want is I want the biggest toolbox possible. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to collect tools all the time because I don't know what the next home project is going to be. And like gardening, I would tell you, I don't actually do home projects, but I think about it kind of along that that line uh, when you're going after, whether it's infections or chemicals, when you're trying to get a clear understanding of what's causing the, the disease. I just want the biggest toolbox and I'm very, very familiar with peptides. Yeah, It depends on what I'm trying to do. So for me, I don't have a peptide approach. You know already, everybody knows peptides are cell signalers. And the question is, what are you trying to signal? And going back to the idea of dumping in things that are cofactors, they look good, minerals, but they're actually cofactors that are going to do something. If I'm going to signal a cell to do something, I'm going to prepare the cell ahead of time. So for me, it just peptides, one more widget or one more tool in the toolbox. Not only do they have a place, but I use them routinely. And so the question is, what are you trying to do? What is the infection or the or the chemical or the pesticide, where is the damage? If it's mitochondrial, mm-hmm. then you're going to need mitochondrial biogenesis, right? And so the question is, what are you using for that? You know, is that is that kind of a MOT-SC strategy to improve um, the, the glycolysis in the cell? Are you trying to build ATP, AMP? You get my point. Are you instead in the lysosome? Are you trying to get more peroxisomes? Where? What's the problem? And at the cell level, what is it damaging? So for me, I'll orient from that standpoint first. And I'll use peptides as part of a bigger picture um, to try and accomplish whatever it is. I won't turn a cellular signal on board until I'm ready for it. As far as, to your point, TA1 and TB4, the idea of retraining T cells, for me, always good. Mm-hmm. If the problem is a major histocompatibility complex, no matter how many times you train the T cells, they just don't recognize that as a threat, then that still may not be the thing. If what you're looking at is autoimmunity, so these infections triggering autoimmunity intentionally, the idea, and I know it's it's an old one, but, but good, body protection compound or yeah. KVE to just kind of control the immune and just say, hey, listen, I know these infections are running circles around your body, but don't don't panic. Again, the question with the peptide is, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to build muscle? So in my world, 
right? Commonly, I'm trying to build muscle. I see lots of athletes that are just trying to get healthy and stay healthy. Can you build muscle, whether it's IGF-1 with LR3 or, or PEG with mechanical growth factor, can you build muscle in cells? Will, the, will that body build muscle when you don't have enough mitochondrial efficiency? And yeah. the answer is don't. And so for me, I'll look nutritionally. Does the, does the body even have what it needs? Is fatty acid oxidation where it belongs? The cofactors for that, do you have the right Bs or are they just all coming out in the urine because you don't have enough gut absorbability? Mm-hmm. And so again, before I signal a cell, the peptide side, I'm going to look to make sure that the other systems are in place. Otherwise, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself, LL31 being the exception to that point. LL3 but for most you. peptides, you're not going to hurt yourself. Okay, at the same time, it really is to me like opening a window and getting all your money and just dumping it out. Yeah. Because well, you or mot- do you not think that there's a possibility of of downside with something like mot C in the mitochondria? Like I I sometimes worry about mot SC in the mitochondria because there's a lot we don't know about Absolutely. mitochondria. And I mean, granted, in mice it does really amazing things. Like you yeah. know, it activates the stat three. It helps with satellite cells. Like all the things. I com- I completely agree. My rationale for using that as an example is because if you need mitochondrial biogenesis, if you need yeah. to make your mitochondria healthy, if there's something that's disrupting mitochondrial function, and a lot of the diseases kind of come down to that, I'm not just going to throw in a mitochondrial peptide. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if I do, it's only because the mitochondria are already healthy. Right. So you've done the work to reestablish. I'm just going to start by going to a mitochondria. And as well, I'm not just going to put a peptide on board. I'm going to try and figure out where is the cell inefficient? Why isn't somebody feeling as good as they could? Or if they're trying to get to the next level, what would actually get them there? What's the area of the cell? The lysosome, is it just not effective at removing the garbage? There's just too much garbage. Again, the uh, endoplasmic reticulum, you just can't make enough proteins. Where is the holdup? And I'm going to first assess that. And then I'm going to go into my toolbox, just all widgets right? <laughs> and take a look of, right. Cause really that's what they are. Yeah. They're just, and then try and figure out, is this really the time to signal the cell? Because Natalie, to your point, imagine if you've got a dysfunctional mitochondria and you cannot properly get through fatty acid oxidation, and then you do decide to put in mod you're very definitely not going to get the ATP that you're hoping for. And not only that, you're going to reduce, or what we think, uh, that you're going to reduce the glycolysis or the, the damage from glycolysis. If fatty oxidation is not working properly, and the only thing that the cell has to live on is glycolysis, and then you just wipe it out to your point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I misspoke. You're right. It's not just LL37. I think the summary is, don't just put things on board. I, I hate that approach. I hate a shotgun approach, both with testing and with treatment. For me, it's a question of really hearing what the heck is going on. What does that person want to do? What's their really, what's the intention? What are you trying to do? What's limiting them from getting there and getting just really, really clear on what that is. And then looking in your box of widgets and putting together a sequence. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to start? And for me, it's not just signaling the cell. I mean, People make peptides all the time. It's not like people don't have enough peptides. I understand the age-related decline, but bodies make peptides. That's how you signal cell. If the cell isn't being signaled properly, then for me, I leave room for the fact that by intention, 
this the body is trying to downregulate that process. Right. And I don't like the idea of a heavy-handed hammer to kind of smash the body to do something that it doesn't want to do. And now going back to the idea of if somebody has high manganese and zinc and low copper, and then you start moving things around only now to change the virulence of the infection, the body is already at a disadvantage. And these levels oftentimes are being controlled by something else. Trying to true them up without really knowing big picture for me, it feels crazy, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like just the best way to get the worst results. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, my starting point really is to get clear on what, what are we trying to accomplish? What got this person in this position to begin with? And oftentimes peptides for me are a part of it, but I won't start signaling cellular function until the cell is healthy enough to do that thing or until I'm confident that by creating that cellular function, there isn't going to be an inadvertent consequence that the cell is trying to avoid. Yeah. You know, that's another way of saying like you're what you're basically in a way also saying is you're respecting the wisdom of the body. Like the system knows, right? Like sometimes you have a thyroid that's really dragging. And what I was taught at school is sometimes the adrenal glands are kind of dragging on that thyroid going, dude, we can't keep up. <laughs> you got to slow down. And people are trying to pump up one or the other and missing that there's there's a there's a whole chain of events that's happening here and the body knows that it it just it needs to slow down a little bit and so i just love that whole idea that even at a cellular level the body has it has a sense of what needs to what needs to kind of slow down and so if we can figure that out and then help to deal with the issue then things will open up which is a little bit like what you said before of dealing with the pathogen somehow those the mercury and the all the all those heavy metals and whatnot start to clear and resolve because as you said to me before the podcast we have these detox pathways now in some cases we also talked about how genetically some people's detox pathways aren't as, as effective as others and maybe you know then you have to step in and help out but ultimately it's how far upstream can you get started and let things flow from there Bodies, bodies are good at detoxifying. I think bodies are always trying to restore health. Mm -hmm. So I go to it from that vantage point. And then when you put an intervention on board, the question is, are you helping or are you hindering? Yeah. So the first step is just trying to understand what actually is happening. If a body, and I agree, is down-regulating thyroid function, why is it doing that? Why is it withholding energy from the cells? And so it doesn't mean that you can't correct it medically. It does mean, I think, you're much more likely to have the outcome that you want if you understand why that process is taking place to begin with. Yeah, I think that's the first step. I think bodies are good at healing. I think oftentimes a heavy-handed approach does the exact opposite. It just feeds into problems and disease. I think interventions are warranted, but they should be done strategically. And I think you use the cues from the body, again, by looking at labs to get a clear understanding of what the bigger process is. What's the intention? What's the body trying to do? I think working with that intention, trying to support that intention is the best way to get to where you're going to get to. And I think by comparison, bull in the China shop kind of approach, having no idea why somebody is not 
feeling well or why their numbers are off and then just, just dumping things in. I think it's probably the most effective way to progress somebody and have them feeling even worse. And I think we've seen a lot of that happen over the last, you know, number of years. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a great point. But conversely, you know, I think that having the confidence to, like you've done a number of times now and described here to administer a treatment protocol and actually watch the person get worse before they get better, having the confidence and the clarity to be able to do that and impart that confidence on a patient who's like, dude, I don't feel better. I feel so much worse. What are we doing here? But having that clarity of thought and confidence to say, just stay the course, it's okay, um, I think is an amazing thing. And it's interesting to me that I think it's Ayurvedic medicine where they talk about when you're when you're working with a disease state, how there's a reversal of the disease and you almost see it go, it's like watching a movie running backwards that it's not like you went from from well to sick and then hop right back to well again. You, It's almost like you can see the person going back through all the different stages of disease that they went through to get to sick before they're able to go back to well. I agree. So get this, this is kind of an interesting thing when it comes to motor neuron disease. In all the folks that we've seen show improvement, the first place that improves, not when they're kind of going back and forth, maybe they're getting better, maybe they're not, but when they actually are getting better, the place that improves is the place where the disease started. That's pretty counterintuitive, huh? What I would have thought, I would have thought the area that was most recently devastated would be the area that would come back, would have the most functionality. Turns out that's not true at all. And the way that we know that somebody is about to actually turn the corner is the term that I use for it and get better. The improvement that they'll have is in the area that the whole thing started as if that really is the area of the disease uh and everything else was collateral damage and now going back over to your point about being confident i'm very numbers driven and so i just had somebody who had been progressing we came up with a strategy started it she started progressing more i asked her to come on in and I ran both inflammatory cytokines and T cells. Her tumor necrosis factor alpha was elevated on her baseline, but her TNF alpha, when she came back, in spite of progressing, had come down by about 50%. Mm. For me, I suspect, right, uh, that she is going to be improving. Yeah. And so I let it just, when I, again, I say me, let me just clarify. I'm not a physician. I work with physicians. So, so when I say me, I am the strategist, um, but it still doesn't change the fact I'm not an MD. She stabilized shortly afterwards and improved. So my point is without those numbers, I don't think I'm confident for the sake of just being confident. It's not for me, the idea of, gosh, I really hope people get better. I do hope people better, but the numbers for me are driving whether they do or not. And if we treat and those numbers don't support improvement, if the immune system is not improving and that person's getting worse, I will very definitely look to change direction. Sure. And so again, I will look at numbers, but when numbers, so inflammatory cytokines are coming down substantially, T cells are showing improvement. CD4 count is improving. Helper 17s are getting better. When when it looks like that, 
there is some momentum to disease. Mm-hmm. And so even if somebody is getting better clinically, they may not feel better or look better instantly. It doesn't change the fact that if every single lab at that point is going in the right direction, chances are you're looking at somebody that's getting better. Um, so yeah, I, I rely heavily on numbers. And that's why I would say I would start by getting baselines on certain key things. I would look at the immune system. I like a, a very comprehensive lymphocyte panel. I want to see, you know, T cells. I like a really clear cytokine panel. I want to see all the infections. I want to see the nutrition. What if nutrition is not just a window into problems, but areas where there could be improvement? And so whether it's amino acid levels or cofactor levels, I'm going to very definitely look at the gut and gut health, right? It plays a major role. I mean, there's a new article almost every week describing the role that healthy microflora play in either causing disease or helping to improve disease. Yeah. So it's the whole picture. And then if somebody is not feeling well, I'm going to go right back to that and figure out, huh, let's take a look and get a point of comparison. But when all things are going in the right direction, then for me, my, my thing is, all right, disease has momentum. It's going to take a little bit. And to your point, yeah, it's like you relive all the steps that you went through to get there. It's like you relive them on the way back out. And so there very definitely is kind of that process of healing and I don't think it's unusual during that time for people to certain certain periods of it to have symptomatic worsening. Yeah, yeah, part of the process. Well, Amy, I think we could keep talking for a long time. I think that this is a really good first kind of go at the work that you're doing in your clinic, which is just, well, you're changing lives, which I think in this world is, uh, it's an amazing thing. So People are very lucky to have you on as their strategist, if that's what your role is. <laughs> I love doing it. So I, same, I, I got to tell you, I, I mean, I feel lucky to do it. I love doing it. So we're going to leave people with a way to reach you if you're okay with that. But if you had a couple of pieces of advice to someone who is dealing with some kind of chronic issue right now, any parting words of wisdom to the listeners I mean, there's so much, but. Okay. Yeah. A couple of things. I think I would say, I think bodies like being healthy, uh, kind of create a direction and, and bodies will follow it. Don't be frustrated. The fact that somebody has been sick for a long time in no way speaks to the treatability or the reversibility of that condition. So even if it is somebody that's either treated a condition for a long time and hasn't seen the improvement or somebody dealing with it, uh, that doesn't change how long you've had it doesn't change the reversibility or the treatability. And then the second thing is it's easy to get blinded. You see something and then you just go running down that road. That's why I told you, you know, with Judy and for me, I saw the Lyme tighter levels. Meanwhile, it actually was Epstein-Barr. I would go back if you've already been either working on your own health or working with somebody on their health and you're not moving the needle, you're just not seeing improvement. I would go back with a fresh set of eyes, right? I would look at it again, for almost from the beginning. I would go back to the history again. I'd recreate the history again, not, not just review the existing history. I'd go back as if it's a brand new look at it. Mm-hmm. And I would remove all of the ideas of, hey, I'm treating Lyme, but that person's not responding. Or I'm treating fibromyalgia because they got it from this exposure. I would remove all of that. Instead, I would see it with a very, very fresh lens of, okay, what am I actually trying to treat? 
and what are all the potential causes. I think that fresh look oftentimes really helps to reorient. And the other thing, I think if your treatment is effective, then you would see a response. And I don't think responses take years. That's just not not in my experience what happens. If you've been doing something and you're not seeing the response that you're looking for, chances are you're doing the wrong thing. And I have certainly found myself there as well. I, th- I think sure. everybody is there. And so the question is, when you know you're getting a response, do you go harder in that direction? Sometimes it's hard to turn around, whether it's pride or whether it's stubbornness or whether it's just the sa- the fact that you've married yourself to it's got to be this. Again, I would tell you, when there's going to be improvement, you expect to see the improvement in a relatively short period of time. If you've already been doing something and that period of time has passed and you're a couple months in, and especially if things are getting worse and there's no reason to believe that your approach is moving the needle, chances are you're going in the wrong direction. So I like the idea of rethinking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Not being not being overly attached to the concept that you got it right the first time and being willing to go back and look at it again is it's powerful. Right. And even if maybe you enlist a colleague and say, look, you take the history for me. Like you look at it with like, if you're so caught up, which I think can happen, right. We've, we've kind of worn this groove on the trail and maybe having somebody else come in and look at it for you and take the patient through a different set of questions or a different path and seeing what comes up. I think might be also really interesting. Yeah, you you really don't know what would cause it. And so I like the question of, do you have any idea of what may have caused this? People oftentimes do, and they'll they'll commonly say to me, this probably has nothing to do with it. I, I had somebody, he said, this probably has nothing to do with it. I've told a bunch of people and they said, it doesn't have anything to do with my ALS, but my my feet started turning a purplish color before. And I remember saying to him when he told me that, Um, I don't know what it means, but I get that I need to figure out what it means. It happened just before your motor neuron symptoms. And so a lot of times people will know, but oftentimes feel embarrassed to say it because they've already said it and been dismissed so many times. And so a common phrase that I use, you know what you know. Yeah. Right. And so if you think it's important, chances are it's important. If you think this thing is making you better, chances are you're getting better. If you think this thing's making you sick, chances are like, in other words, if there's a treatment on board and it makes you, it's making you sick, chances are it is people know what they know. And so I think on the strategy side or, or on the clinical side, what becomes really important is just really listening, really listening with the idea of tell me, what do you think may have been the factors? Yeah. And even if it was Judy in the third grade, right? For me, the idea of really not dismissing anything and just kind of building one big picture, don't edit it because at that point it's too premature. Instead, just kind of put everything together and then look for patterns. That's probably going to be the most successful. And a lot of times people really do. They'll know, they'll say, you know, I have this condition now. I have rheumatoid arthritis now. Okay, what do you think was the beginning of this? And they'll tell you, you know, I've been healthy my whole life, except around my 30s, I started to develop hypertension. I, I started blood pressure medication. And, you know, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, they shouldn't be on blood pressure medication. There shouldn't mm-hmm. be cholesterol. So you're already looking at a body that's changing. And the question is, tell me about that year. Tell me about the couple of years that preceded that. And that's all. And I just had somebody that's all of a sudden where you find out, oh, well, during that time, actually, I was an electrician in a tar pit. 
what? Okay, so let me just make sure I understand this. Right. And so kind of going through it and putting the, the pieces together, remember, I, I think, and what I always try and remember, I'm not treating the thing that's in front of me. That's the outcome. That's the symptom. You know, whatever that that group of, of presentation, that's just the symptom. The question is, when did it start? When did blood pressure start to dysregulate? When did a thyroid dysfunction? Somebody comes in and they're on thyroid medication, a woman, for example, and she started at 34, but there's no reason. Pregnancy can cause thyroid dysfunction. Okay, but you rule that kind of stuff out. And now what you're looking at is somebody that has no reason for a thyroid gland to dysfunction. Why would a perfectly healthy thyroid gland start to dysfunction? You know, at that point, that's your starting point. It's mm-hmm. not the disease, but it's something that you're looking at. It's when somebody was perfectly healthy and all of a sudden fasting glucose moved up to a 95, right? You should be a 70, 75, 80 tops. You see somebody and then you pull all their other labs. And 15 years ago, you start seeing the beginnings of insulin resistance, right? You see uh, fasting glucose at 93 in somebody that has no business with that elevating fasting glucose, you know, that's when the metabolic dysfunction was starting. And so I think it's important to get clear on what else was happening around that time. And the only other thing I'll throw out there, but I think it's really important. I think mood, emotions, and mental health very definitely play a role in disease. I think if it is somebody and they have something that has not been addressed, I think if it was a very emotionally stressful or taxing time in their life, it can absolutely be a trigger for conditions. And so I think it's really important not to overlook that. And I'll ask people, um, you think currently, if you had to kind of gauge your amount of stress from work, from personal, uh, mild, moderate or severe, and I'll get really clear on that. And I'll ask people, you know, you think in general, you've been dealing with a lot of stress. It is not uncommon to find people that have onset of disease shortly after something terrible, the loss of somebody or divorce or the loss of a job. And so for me in a history, I'll always look to orient that as well. And I think with that in mind, it's important that they have a resolution to that or are in the process of resolving it. There is a very, very clear link between sadness and elevations in inflammatory cytokines. Mm-hmm. So I think in this big picture of what's causing diseases, we know the things that we've already talked about, infections, uh, exposures and chemical toxins, predispositions genetically, but that emotional component oftentimes for me is the linchpin behind whether somebody will get better or whether they'll continue to get sick. Yes. And so make sure that that part is addressed is really, really important. Love that. That's so important. Thank you for mentioning that. Actually, it's uh, it's a nice place to end, I think. So Amy Jaramillo, how can people get in touch with you if they need help or, you know, how do people get in touch with your amazingness? <laughs> Natalie, thanks for that. Uh, I'm, in, I'm at Body Science. Uh, we are a functional clinic down in Miami. Um, let me give you a couple things. Let me give you the website because that way you'll have all the information uh, and I'll give you my information as well. So it's www.bodyscience.life, L-I-F-E. Yep. I will tell you when we were looking for that link.com wasn't available, but then I realized this is about health. This is about life anyway. I think this Perfect. is about life. So that's how yeah. we got there. Um, the 
email for the office is info at body science, but I'm Amy. So I'm, I'm one of the AMY Amy's. I know there's a handful of permutations that, uh, so I'm Amy at body science.life. Amazing. And that's the easiest way. Listen, I'm so glad that we did this, Natalie. I, I agree. We could probably, you and me, we could probably talk forever. Uh, but I think we covered a lot of really important stuff. I think we and did. And I, I, I think that there's an opportunity in a year or maybe in a few months to revisit the conversation. Because as you said yourself in the podcast, like you're, you know, you're so fresh on this path and you've seen all these amazing things. And to see in a year how your current successes are faring and all the other things you will have uncovered along the way, I think will be quite amazing. So I do hope we get to keep in touch and keep talking. Me too. too. I look forward to it. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.